Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Katrina Forrester. I'm Assistant Professor of Government and Social Studies at Harvard University, and I'd like to welcome you all to today's RSA online event. If you'd like to join the conversation on Twitter, you're welcome to do so using the hashtag RSA Liberalism or in our YouTube chat. Now, I'm delighted today to have the chance to talk with William Davis. Will is Professor of Political Economy at Goldsmiths University, where he is co-director of the Political Economy Research Center. He's published several books and written widely on economic sociology, neoliberalism, and the history of economics, as well as on contemporary British politics. And his new book, This Is Not Normal, The Collapse of Liberal Britain, is a brilliant exploration of the state of liberalism today, or what remains of it, and of what has happened in our politics and public life in recent years to lead us to this moment that, as Will says, no longer recognises itself. So, Will, thank you for talking to us about your book today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So to start us off, I wanted to ask you to talk a bit about the story you tell in the book. Mm. Now, the book is really, it seems to me, about the failure and promises of liberalism and about the collapse of liberal institutions and norms in recent years. In it, you put the crisis of 2016 to 20 around Brexit into a broader context. So not only of 2007 to 8, the financial crisis, but by telling a longer story about the various conditions that brought us here. The decline of trust, of faith and facts, the erosion of public institutions by neoliberal policy design and financialization, but also by scandals. So the expenses scandal, libel crisis. All these, you say, provided the grounds for the break with politics as usual that has happened with Brexit and has now been further entrenched today with the pandemic. Now, this is a story about the break with normality, the collapse of liberalism into something new, though what exactly that new thing is, it's still quite hard to make out. Now, one of the arguments that really stood out to me in the book was the idea that liberalism has gone from being something like a hegemonic ideology, the thing we all took for granted as common sense, to being something more like a cultural commitment or a political style. So you say ethical persuasion, cultural identity. It's one ideology among many and one that though it may still hold sway with the particular sector of Britain's economic and social elite, it no longer has, has much political power. So liberalism, you write, has gone from being the governing idea for our institutions and norms to a kind of political resource. The liberal center has been hollowed out by a string of events and phenomena that you deal with in the book. Grenfell, Windrush, Corbynism, Brexit, the rise of social media, the longer term legacies of Thatcherism, and increasingly, thanks to the pandemic and the jobs crisis, the erosion of the labour market. Now, all of this has resulted in a breakdown of liberal categories and the undermining of political liberalism. And it's all left us with a kind of abnormal politics. And I've got so many different questions coming out of this fascinating analysis, but I thought perhaps we could start off we're talking a little bit about what it is here that you think of as normal, what the yeah. thing is that we have lost. Well, I suppose the, and thank you first of all for that um, overview, as, as, as that, that captures, the book does touch on many of the different crises, particularly the last four years, but, uh, but also of some of those broader sociological conditions, because I think as you, as you, um, uh, as you indicate with, with those remarks, is that I think one of the things I've tried to do in the book is to respond to uh, some day-to-day -day events that often seem rather kind 
kind of uh, chaotic, irrational, um, incomprehensible sometimes by trying to kind of broaden the context. I think that's one thing that my writing I, I, I aspire to do and particularly drawing on, on, on various social sciences uh, is to try and, by broadening the frame of analysis, to try and say that actually these, these events, we can still make sense of them in certain ways, even if they are um, sometimes quite frightening and, and, and disruptive. But I think that um, 2016 is, a, is obviously a key year in all of this, and it was a year that provoked uh, huge uh, panic amongst liberals in, on both sides of the Atlantic with the Trump victory and the, the Brexit referendum results. Um, I think that if you have to ask, well, what, was, what, what does 2016 represent? I think what it represents is the uh, making explicit or the making public of the fact that the various frameworks and institutions and metrics that used to be somehow considered to be outside of politics in some way and therefore somehow providing a kind of rules of the game within which disagreements and disputes take place and that includes things like well, the rule of law, uh, respect for the integrity of democratic processes, some basic recognition that facts and statistics um, have some kind of validity and authority that is somehow sort of apolitical or outside of the, of the field of argument. Now, of course, all of those things have been under great pressure at various points in throughout the history of, of, of liberalism over, 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 over 300 years or so. But I think that 2016 was a particular rupture that, um, uh, that, that suggested that uh, there was actually huge political capital to be gained from uh, directly and publicly uh, belittling or, 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 or even sort of trivializing and, 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 and rubbishing some of those sorts of institutions. So, you know, the, the, the apparent confrontation with, with the experts that were uh, against Brexit or, or against, um, you know, with Boris Johnson's confrontation with the Supreme Court over the prorogation of Parliament uh, this time last year, uh, that there is now considerable political gains to be made from directly uh, confronting and challenging institutions whose authority depends on the idea that they are somehow maybe not beyond rebuke but somehow uh, uh, external to the to the field of, of, of battle of, of, of politics now that I think is what became manifest and public in 2016 but as you as you pointed out um, uh, in your opening comments I think that the broader uh, undermining of some of these institutions was obviously a much slower process uh, and the gradual loss of credibility of mainstream political institutions and the mainstream media which is also a very important part of the story is something that I think uh, as many political scientists and, and sociologists have, have explored is something that, that, that is, was decades in the making. Uh, so there was a kind of a rupture and a recognition of something that occurred uh, and we've been living with the sort of absence of that uh, sort of you know, semblance of normality uh, over the last four years since. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think one of the things that often gets lost in this idea of normality and abnormality is that there is a backstory of undoing of the conditions that make a kind of abnormality possible. But it still raises the question for me of what you think this, the kind of status quo is. Are you thinking that is the idea that actually there's a welfare state in the post-war be behind the undermining that neoliberalism and the erosion of trust in our public institutions um, undid, uh, well, undid those institutions. Is, there, is that something that you think we can go back to? Is there a normal there? And is that the normal you're imagining? This, well, I think like, that there's, a, there's an issue of, of, of 
of, of achieving the conditions of some kind of social and economic peace, which is where the questions of social security and, and the welfare state come in. I mean, it's, I don't really talk that much about the, the welfare state or about uh, economic policy in that sense. I mean, I think that the, the, the question of austerity and uh, the kind of, I suppose, the radicalization of, of neoliberalism that occurred in the, in the aftermath of 2008 is, I think, clearly set some of the conditions for um, this kind of legitimacy crisis that exploded in 2016. Specifically, I think the sense that um, whether or not people pay close attention to the banking crisis and the fallout from the banking crisis, the, the sense that uh, certain people get away with things routinely uh, and that they are not punished for things and that actually we have a system in which uh, certain types of um, elite actors, whoever they may be, uh, are not, um, uh, 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 they are not holding to the same sorts of rules um, as everybody else. I think that 2008, 9, 10 was in some ways a, a kind of epic uh, demonstration of that. And, and in one of the essays in the book, which is about the kind of crisis of elites that felt that happened after that, I talk about the ways in which, um, in Britain anyway, there was a kind of almost like an annual crisis of elites that broke, uh, whether it be the, the, the hacking scandal of, of, of surrounding the Murdoch papers in, in 2011, um, or various other things like the libel scandal, uh, the Jimmy Savile scandal that engulfed the, the BBC, that these various moments over the last, over the, over the um, years leading up to 2016, in which uh, it, it came to appear that uh, the mainstream institutions of public life had become dedicated to the protection and the uh, benefit of their insiders in some way, that actually public life is some kind of sham. Now, I think that there's lots of evidence to suggest that that is a, a sensibility that lends itself towards what, for want of a better word, is, is, is known to popular movements and, and voting um, that uh, the sense that the public life has become corrupt in various ways um, leads to this desire to actually kind of you know, to blow up institutions in, in one way or the other. I think a, another kind of shift that is um, and this is I think a type of normality that we can't kind of go back to to go back to your question. One of the kind of major uh, issues that concerns me in, in the book and in several of the essays in the book is the question of where does truth gets established, if you like, um, that um, liberalism requires that there are certain institutions and public spaces, whether they be courtrooms, parliaments, press conferences, um, processes of peer review within the academy or so on, where the question of the truth or falsehood of statements gets established. Um, the rise of the digital technologies in everyday life and what could I think now we can recognize it being the rise of, of the platform economy or platform society, which has been platforms as we now talk about them is, is something of the last sort of 15 years or so. But I think there's been a, a creeping kind of digitization of everyday life since the since the 1970s. Um, I think that that produces a different um, mentality, a different epistemology, which suggests that actually the, the truth of events, the truth of, of, of people's characters, the truth of, of, of why X causes Y, is not something that is to be ascertained 
via reference to the public record or to public statements in, in Parliament or in electoral campaigns, where it might be, or in, in, in the media, regardless of whatever flaws we know about in relation to the, to the mainstream media, but actually something that, that belongs in, that, that exists within certain kinds of data archive of one kind or another. So you think of maybe we, we talk now of sort of big data and the, the data that is analysed um, you know, most extensively by these giant platforms such as Google and, and, and Facebook and others. Um, and a lot of what I, a lot of the processes that I'm trying to describe in the book, and it's also this crisis of elites, are about the the the, the implications of the uh, of, of this digitization of everyday life, which effectively turns the front stage of politics, of the media, um, of culture, into uh, what could potentially look like a sham in some ways. It could be that politics starts to look increasingly like um, the, um, the, a set of declarations and performances, but which actually are sort of unbeholden to what actually is going on at the back end. They're not actually constrained. The words don't actually constrain people, but the, the, the words are no longer the basis or, or written records are no longer where some idea of truth resides. Now, of course, politics, I mean, it, go the whole way back to, to Machiavelli and before to, 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 to know that politics has, has never been seen as a space where, which, which privileges um, honesty above all other, all other virtues. But I do think that this sociological shift um, is clearly something that has benefited a certain type of political actor who is, comes to see words purely as things that can actually generate um, a sort of positive impression or to draw attention or to uh, sort of provide a kind of reality television sort of entertainment, if you like. And that, in this country, is, I think, clearly Boris Johnson. And the story of Donald Trump in the United States is another example of that, because it basically means that public life becomes, um, at best, entertaining, diverting, uh, attention-grabbing. Um, and there is, for the person who is really a known liar, someone who actually is, is known to lie, doesn't, it's not that there's a sort of, there are sort of secret liar in the way that, you know, the, the, the sort of opponents of, say, Hillary Clinton or, or, or Tony Blair might, might say, well, this person thinks they're so honest, but actually they're, they're not. Having these kind of public liars, these kind of flagrant liars dominating the public stage has a certain type of sort of, uh, I think, a kind of effervescence and a sort of, uh, almost comes as a relief to, to people who, who support some of these political movements. Yeah, that's really interesting, the ways in which a certain kind of politician and a certain part of the political of our political life, namely the, the right and increasingly the authoritarian right, have become very good at capitalizing on these different shifts and trajectories. And I think that brings us in maybe to talk a bit about the conservatives and the Tory party who play a role in a number of course, of the essays in your in the book, since you were analysing at various points, Theresa May, uh, reading it, I was really struck by the fact that, you know, the Brexit party, which we were so concerned with until so recently, has, since you wrote your essay, evaporated. I mean, it was a one election party in many respects, but I thought that one of the things that has become more and more persuasive to me um, is an idea that you put forward in one of the, your essays, about how the Conservatives really capitalized on a new economic formation, which you call the Rentier Alliance. So a new economic constituency formed by the rise of a particularly asset-rich class that benefited from some of the changes um, we've seen in capitalism over the last 40 or so, 50 years. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that trend and whether you think it's a stable alliance. I mean, can you see that coalition lasting where is the narrative now for the Tories? 
I mean, I think so just to, um, uh, to, to kind of provide some of the details of, of what you're referring to. I mean, I think this idea of a, of a Rontier alliance that I, that I talk about, and this was a piece actually I wrote last summer when there were still huge uncertainties as to, to what was, was going on in, in terms of well, how Britain was going to kind of resolve the various kind of conflicts that, that had broken out uh, within Parliament, within the country, um, and it really wasn't clear whether, you know, and it still isn't clear, it's kind of become unclear all over again, but that's another, another question. Um, but, um, I mean, it was, I think one of the things that was kind of quite astonishing when you looked at some of the, 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 the demographic um, data and the polling data on, firstly, the people who, um, members of the Conservative Party who voted for uh, Boris Johnson or, the, or the, the, this kind of small electorate of the Conservative Party members who got to choose the Prime Minister who succeeded Theresa May. Uh, then you look at the um, demographics of where the Conservative vote is, is clustered. Uh, and then also you look at the, um, the, the, the Brexit vote of 2016. Clearly, this is a, a generational um, uh, divide. There's a story there about, about, about generations. But it's also the case that... Um, people um, become no more likely to vote Tory as they get older unless they are um, property owners. That actually it's uh, the, the, the Tory vote is, yes, it's older than average, but it's also specifically those who are uh, asset rich to some extent. And actually a lot of the, one of the, the polls that, I, that I, I, I looked at in that piece was one which showed that people who were most keen on the idea of a no deal Brexit were also those who describe themselves as financially secure to some extent. That doesn't mean they're, they're very rich, but that they, in some ways, are kind of not feeling worried about where they're going to get their, their work from next week, because many are retired, um, many own their own properties outright and so on, so they're not vulnerable to, you know, various interest rates and so on. Um, then there's the, the those who actually support the, the, the donors to the Conservative Party and the donors to uh, vote leave and there's quite a lot of these kind of maverick entrepreneurs there's hedge fund capital there are people who are basically types of you know it's not it's not like the, the you know the large companies the, the large investors and employers in Britain were not in favor of Brexit so you've got a, a type of capital and a type of demographic that um, are attracted to the idea of disruption for some reason some of that is is born out of a, out of a sense of resentment towards uh, a perceived um, a dominance of a metropolitan elite that I think was heavily kind of, you know, the, the Blair years were um, a time of hegemony for a certain kind of social and economic liberalism. But at the same time, there was clearly something, you know, under the surface, there was something uh, stewing, a sort of sense of resentment that actually, um, that, that, that um, certain different certain demographics, certain parts of the country, which were uh, sucking up all of the opportunities and the wealth. Um, and um, uh, so there was a sort of, I think that what came together in 2016, 17, 18, 19, was this combination of these um, uh, types, of, a type of a, a type of capital, hedge fund um, capital that uh, preys on instability. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of discussion, which I think all turned out to be a little bit overblown after, after it was explored um, in, in detail. But you know, were were the hedge funds specifically looking for a no deal Brexit because they were all going to short the pound and so on. And I mean, of course, hedge funds have shorted the pound at various times and they do benefit from, uh, from, from political instability, whether or not that was the sort of, there was actually a kind of conspiracy going on. I think that got, that got rather sort of exaggerated. Um, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an alliance between, um, properties, not necessarily rich, but, um, uh, elderly voters, um, 
those who are um, wealthy um, maverick entrepreneurs and uh, hedge fund uh, managers who have the ability to make the kinds of donations that have been made to, the, to vote leave and, and to the Conservative Party. And the question is, what do they all want exactly? Now, of course, part of it is a desire to simply shake things up, a sense that actually, you know, there are some rather kind of, there are people in London and Brussels who have had it too easy that they, you know, that there are these sort of technocrats who think they know everything and want to, uh, these people need to be, need to be shown, they need to, you know, an injection of, of chaos would actually be good for the country because it would actually uh, destabilize this, this, this alliance. And there are, I think, plenty of conservative gurus out there, people like Nick Timothy and, uh, and Tim Montgomery and others, who, who've got this kind of, you know, almost rather sort of paranoid view that actually the problem with the, with the establishment that is that liberalism and, and sort of left liberalism, almost a kind of Marxism, is so baked into the, to the fabric of, of, of Whitehall and the BBC and all these other institutions that, you know, they're almost beyond any kind of democratic reform. I mean, that's the sort of, and that's a, a very popular view amongst, you know, some of the kind of Trump supporters in the right, uh, transport in the United States, and it's a sort of view that, that, that media institutions such as Breitbart will propagate that actually, you know, there's a kind of, you know, the whole of public life is now sort of all coordinated in, in, in certain ways that are not visible to ordinary voters. Um, but I think that it's not a, it's not a stable um, uh, alliance because it doesn't have a particular kind of, it, it doesn't seek a particular uh, set of policy outcomes that actually could create a new type of hegemony or a new type mode of regulation. Um, it doesn't seek a new normality in that sense, in the sense that, you know, that the, um, the, the shift from uh, sort of industrial model of, of, of capitalism into a kind of post-industrial or post-Fordist model involved certain particular actors pushing for different style of, of, of investment and different style of production and employment. I think that this is actually a primarily a kind of a destructive alliance. And in that sense, it, it, it doesn't actually have much that it, that it seeks to, to put in its place. Now, of course, there, is, there are the sort of, you know, the, there's the sort of Dominic Cummings vision of a kind of entrepreneurial um, uh, high-tech state that will, um, but but even that part of the part of the ideology of that is that it is specifically um, kind of thwarting convention, uh, uh, abstaining from any kind of normality, hiring weirdos and misfits, as he sort of wanted to say. So um, I think that there's a uh, it, 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 it's not stable for the simple reason that it doesn't actually seek stability and it doesn't necessarily view stability, or it might view stability. For, for, for the actors themselves in the form of their own private wealth and their own assets that can accumulate. But it doesn't seek a model of social stability of any kind. Yeah, at one point in the book, you make this really interesting argument that um, the Conservatives under Johnson have certainly, and since Brexit really, have become a kind of party where they don't even need to promise a future. Whereas the left, and I kind of want to ask you a little bit about the left now, uh, whereas the left have become, or under Corbyn, were a party that promised a future by some kind of restoration before um, the fall of neoliberalism, privatization, Thatcherism. Mm. Um, as, and the restoration was a way of moving forward, whereas actually uh, conservatives at the moment it is a, it's a pod, the politics is one, as you say, of destruction, but within that there is no real sense of what might come next, partly because they're um, part of the ideology is against that kind of planning mm. in and of itself. Yeah. And so I wondered how you see the left being able to do, you know, to make use of that 
binary here because in, on the one hand at the end of the book you kind of talk a little bit about how liberalism although this declining um, ideology still offers much to the left and liberals should be able and both left and left liberals liberals and people on the left should be able to defend certain elements of the liberal tradition um that you see as really crucial to kind of sustaining a kind of normality um but on the other hand there's this kind of tension here of um whether liberalism can actually say anything um, and what the left can offer instead to this kind of um, backward facing reactionary ideology that the Tories have found yeah. themselves in. Yeah, and it's, it's difficult because I mean, I, I think, you know, the, 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 the left in, in Britain or the, the centre left or the, the Labour Party anyway, had in some ways had a, had a great outburst of, of, of modern of, of policy modernising fervour in the 1990s. Which I think petered out um, over the over the two thousands, but I think there was a kind of great excitement that, that the left could now kind of invent new policies. I mean, not not the kind of radical ones that that, that, that the Corbyn left uh, would have liked to see, and many people would would say, with some reason, lots of them were uh, merely a kind of a sort of affirmation of certain kind of neoliberal precepts of, of flexibility and enterprise and so on. Um, but I think that there is a kind of um, what's I mean, what what I think Corbynism um offered which was very exciting to many people was a kind of almost a kind of you know that politics could become much more than just sort of policy tinkering again and that it could actually become about some idea of of, of wholesale transformation of, of the economy now i think that yes some of it uh, did have some uh, rather kind of retrospective or rather uh, nostalgic elements to it i think also on the right there is actually a, a nos obviously there's a nostalgia for a, for a sort of cultural nostalgia that can sometimes morph into a kind of xenophobia or a, and a, and, a, and a type of, um, uh, sort of patriarchal uh, nostalgia as well for, uh, you know, that the economy and, and society kind of used to work absolutely fine until everything kind of got sort of thrown in the air by the 60s and, 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 and the, then the, the kind of offshoring of jobs that, that followed. Um, but I think that, um, I suppose what I wanted to argue at the end of the book was that there will always be a, um, that, if you go back to what I was saying earlier about liberalism is about the taking of, of certain things out of the realm of political contestation and dispute. Now that's something that, I mean, generally speaking, the left doesn't want to do that. It wants to politicize things. It doesn't want to depoliticize things. But nevertheless, I think that the kinds of policies that the left uh, imagines and, uh, and uh, for the future and defend, whether it's something like the Green New Deal or, or the ones that it defends in the UK, such as the National Health Service, the idea is not simply to be constantly fighting for something day in, day out, and constantly having to kind of wage sort of political, daily kind of political war in order to, to, to sustain something. It's to establish something and to institute it via legislation, to turn it into, use law in order to actually kind of, um, to, 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 to give it some, to, to crystallize it and to embed it and to put it beyond uh, uh, the, 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 the space of political uh, contestation. To, of course, that means identifying the absolutely urgent existential needs that something like the Green New Deal uh, is uh, being motivated by. And equally, you know, in the current health crisis that we're in, I mean, this is sort of something that I think, you know, that, that the, the politics has, has, has come into much closer contact with matters of life and death than it was during the, the, the era of kind of policy innovation and, and, and tinkering of the, of the Blair years. But I think, I suppose I... Um, it, it's very difficult because I think what, what the right, the, the threat the right poses to uh, efforts to try and 
establish institutions is that the establishment of institutions is something that has a kind of has certain kind of liberal qualities about it, I think, in the sense that it's about trying to establish kind of new, a new normality or a new, a new idea of a status quo. Um, and I think that um, uh, part of the problem is simply that, the, the, you know, what are going to be the sorts of actors in politics? And this has been a major problem for, for the Labour Party and, you know, the, um, whether, you know, what position Keir Starmer takes on matters of human rights law when he happens to be a lawyer himself. This puts him in a very kind of awkward position of, is he going to end up just being kind of positioned as some sort of elite liberal lawyer? This is, I mean, this is a very difficult politics to try and uh, deal with. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure I really have the answers to this, but I think what I wanted to argue in the book was sort of simply not to, um, you know, not, not to, to duck the importance of, of good policy making as a way of trying to actually get out of this uh, this crisis because I think that you know we now see that bad policy making and sort of almost kind of flagrant incompetence actually leads to a terrible loss of life actually I mean this is what the, the 2020 has demonstrated as much as anything else. So in that sense liberal tools are the path um, are part of any progressive Toolbox. I think that I think that that's. Um, I mean, it, again, it depends how, how widely you, you define liberalism. But I think that there's um, a sense that. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that there is a need to uh, establish procedures that have some sort of um, sense of, uh, of some sense of, 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 of justice about them in the way in which that certain procedures are followed, certain standards of valuation and evaluation are followed and it actually matters whether or not people um, obey rules or don't obey rules in public life. I mean I don't see how you can have credible um, public institutions of the sort that might actually pursue certain forms of redistributive, uh, certain forms of distributive justice uh, that might be able to establish new forms of uh, of democratization or the democratization of the economy or the sorts of aims that the left um, uh, pursues uh, without there being also some recognition of the importance of, of procedural norms and certain types of what you could call small c constitutionalism that could be driven into the economy and driven into uh, uh, the, 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 you know, into, into uh, political institutions. I think that ultimately the, um, I mean this comes back to a lot of my sort of thinking about neoliberalism which is discussed at some point, the various points in the book, is that what neoliberalism as an ideology uh, effectively means is that uh, decision-making will be judged not according to whether or not it is fair or unfair or just or unjust, but whether it is efficient or inefficient, that actually institutions will become evaluated and audited in terms of a sort of constant kind of economic analysis of, so, you know, you look at universities today and the question of whether or not a given degree program is considered to be worthwhile or not is entirely in terms of sort of customer metrics of student satisfaction and then other metrics of graduate employment in the labor market that actually that the only way of, of, of measuring or not whether or not something is worth doing or not is to resort back to uh, market uh, prices and to economic analysis this is what I argue has undermined faith in some of the kind of more uh, potentially more radical visions of liberalism um, that have been clearly lost I think over over the last sort of 40 years or so and what I mean by that is the capacity for people to actually establish um, benchmarks of value ways of actually uh, establishing procedures of social and public life uh, that are actually through which people can actually 
establish trust between, you know, uh, over, over, over decision making and the allocation of resources of a sort that is absolutely fundamental, if any kind, it's more fundamental uh, to establish these sorts of um, 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 sort of constitutions and the rules of social life in a transparent and dependable way. It's far more important for the left to do that than for the right, because the right can depend on uh, 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 traditional forms of, of, of managerial autarky for the organization of, 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 of organizations. Mm. That's really interesting. And I wonder, I mean, I think we've got ch uh, time for one more question. So I want to really ask you how all this story that we're living through about the decline of these institutions, how do you think it's going to be affected by the pandemic? Because it seems to me, that, well, at one point in the book, you talk, um, when you're talking early on about the Brexit crisis, you raise a question about what will happen if a true emergency hits mm. during the crisis of the British state that Brexit became. And while there may be worse emergencies, this is pretty bad mm. as an emergency. And so I wondered how you think this is going to affect the crisis of liberalism? Is it going to show, crystallize the importance of these kind of liberal institutions that you're pointing us towards or underscore their demise? Well, I think, I mean, we can already see, I think, I mean, all, obviously all, all, all states and societies are put under dreadful pressure by what's happening. So I don't think that Britain is, is particularly exceptional, but the book is about Britain. So um, it's exceptional in, in certain respects, but I'm, I'll talk about Britain, not to say that other states and societies societies are doing brilliantly and are not under tremendous stress at the moment. But I think that um, you can see that um, I think that the crisis of the, the broad crisis of trust in the in, in, in politicians, in parliament, in government um, that um, has been it's not certainly not a 2016 phenomenon. It's something that people talk, talk about sort of gradual sort of depoliticization and, 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 and alienation from from mainstream politics that dates back to the 90s or, or, the, or the 1980s. Um, but I think that the one of the great risks that we face at the moment is um, the, uh, the, the this crisis of trust start to spiral into types of, um, you know, well, you, you, the rise of conspiracy theories that is clearly a kind of, you know, historically, I think, frequently accompanies um, pandemics of this nature. But I think that uh, there's a real sense that, um, you know, this government is not telling us the truth. The trust in, I mean, there, there are some astonishing polls in, in the UK showing how uh, trust in the government over the information surrounding the, the virus kind of plummeted over the course of April and May um, from, from a reasonable point. There was quite a lot of sort of uh, confidence that then just sort of disappeared. And I think that when you think about how much longer this process is, is, is now likely to go on, far longer than anybody imagined in the spring, I think that the, the potential for a gradual sort of uh, further decay of, uh, of, of, of the sort of infrastructure of, of, of credibility of, of, of public life, I think is that, that, that potential is, is quite great. Um, I think that the potential for the expansion of the kind of power of a kind of platform logic is also very great. I mean, obviously in the economy, I mean, the, the platforms have, have done, um, kind of had a, had a wonderful <laughs> uh, sort of most profitable um, crisis um, as anyone who's followed the kind of news of Bezos's kind of spiraling wealth will know. Um, but also I think that the, that the, the, the fact that rising surveillance is, is one of the uh, least bad uh, ways out of this situation at the moment is that the kind of ubiquitous 
digital surveillance becomes something that could actually become a sort of, you know, part not state-led as such, but a kind of normal feature or certainly kind of state-encouraged um, feature of, of, of how this is, um, this, is, this is handled. So I think that some of those kind of trends in the, that I talk about in the book, I think clearly get exacerbated by, by the circumstances of the pandemic. Whether it's the sort of type of emergency that kind of reveals uh, you know, I think lots of people have talked about the pandemic as having this kind of X-ray effect of, you know, what of, 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 of the extent to which institutions are still able to function uh, adequately or not. And I think that it, um, you know, it has a kind of, you know, it's revealed certain failures. I mean, far more graphically, I think, in the United States than, than in the UK, but of certain types of state failure, the failure of certain kinds of state capacity that I think would not kind of expected in that sense um, uh, prior to the to the pandemic. So I think that that kind of the ability of the state to actually deliver certain types of, 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 of sort of competent um, policies and, and social goods will I think go into decline or is going into decline at the moment. Um, but I think that the, um, uh, you know, the broader sense of, 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 of um, I suppose, confidence in, in constitutional democracy is, is, I think at the moment, is, it looks like it is likely to suffer as well. So, I mean, it's difficult to say exactly kind of, you know, where does this leave liberalism as such? I think that liberalism depends on the idea that human lives, I mean, not historically de delivered upon by, by any means, but it, ideologically, it depends on the idea that human lives carry equal value. Um, and I think that, you know, in some ways, Britain had had a real sort of um, revival of a kind of sort of mass sort of, I suppose, maybe not liberal sensibility, but of social democratic or social liberal sensibility in the in the spring, where this kind of huge sort of emergency effort to try and you know build ventilators and almost like a kind of wartime effort to try and um, uh, to, to sort of save lives or costs. I think that as that wore off, and I think that as the sort of question of how the economy kind of continues uh, becomes more pressing, and particularly over the coming winter, I think that the it will become less and less credible um, ideologically, even if it's never been entirely a sort of, a, a sort of um, delivered upon anyway, uh, that, that, that lives kind of carry that equal value. And it's not, I mean, and that's something that I think that the right, and particularly the radical right, uh, exploits and, uh, and, and sees an opportunity. Yeah, we are living in tumultuous times. Um, we could go on all day, but I'm afraid that all, that's all we've got time for. So, Will, thank you for taking the thank time. Thank you very to much. And for sharing your insights um, about current politics and how we got here. And to those of you watching, I hope our conversation today has given you a flavour of the sorts of fascinating analyses you can find in Will's new book, This Is Not Normal, which I can highly recommend and is out next week. Information about where you can get hold of a copy will be on a sidebar in the chat here and on the RSA event social media. So all that's left for me is to say thank you again to Will Davis and thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.